according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 this morning, we are dealing with the thanksgiving prayer that Paul has here in verses uh, 3 through 5. Philippians 1 verses 3 through 5, very common for Paul in almost every circumstance, I think with two exceptions, that he uh, begins his epistles with a thanksgiving on behalf of his readers, the recipients of his epistle. And, and so here, his thanksgiving on behalf of the saints in Philippi, uh, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And so there's a lot we need to unpack from those verses, details that related not only to the vocabulary specifically, but then the connection, the syntax. What puts those terms together in what way? What makes his prayer joyful? And, uh, and do we pray even if we're not joyful? And how does this work in, uh, in different combinations? So in any event, let's uh, open up with a word of prayer and ask the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of his eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together this morning. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, for um, all that you do. Day by day, moment by moment, we thank you for this morning and the freedom that we have in our nation and the grace provision we have to assemble together to receive instruction. I thank you, Father, we meet in a public building with a sign out front and a website telling all the world who we are and where we are and when we're going to be here. And Father, uh, I thank you that uh, we still enjoy the hedge of protection that uh, hedges us about and protects us and blesses our time together this morning. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to teach us your truth. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, Wednesday we wrapped up the last of point three in the outline. So let me pull that slide up here as we were dealing with that talking about remembrance. There is a link in verse 3 between thanksgiving and remembrance. And we've been talking about this in these recent classes. I thank my God in the verb eucharisteo that speaks of the thanksgiving and the uh, emphasis on grace that is found within all applications of true thanksgiving. So it is an appreciation in grace for what God has supplied. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you and the aspect of remembrance. We want to make thanksgiving and remembrance the the anchors of our prayer life. Thanksgiving and remembrance should be the primary prayer practices before we even get around to asking for anything, before uh, intercessions, before petitions, before anything else. We want to see if we can front load the thanksgiving and the remembrance to follow the pattern that we have, not only here, but throughout the New Testament. We find it very consistently in Paul's writings. We'll have more to say on this as we get, uh, I'm going to use chapter 4 as a main uh, development for the doctrine of prayer as it comes to us there in Philippians 4, 6. So stay tuned for that. The ideas on remembrance though, let's, let's keep in mind that they are grounded in the Old Testament. We have example after example after example in the Old Testament, the concept of remembrance, the concept of memorials. We have sacrifices that are given, like Passover is given as a memorial, and God codifies the, the blessings of memorial within the worship of His covenant people. The Jewish people would have memorial as a feature of their annual worship, and they would do so corporately. They would do so as a nation. They would do so as families. The parents were to pass on to their children and their grandchildren the significance of these memorials. They even had scripts to, that, that were written out that they would recite from. You know, what is the significance of this day? Why is this day different? You know, why are we eating standing up with our feet shod? Why, why is this day different? And the parents and the grandparents would be able to pass on to their children and their grandchildren the significance of Passover, the significance of the Exodus and how they were delivered out of Egypt. And it was designed as a memorial. So the Old Testament is just saturated with aspects of memorial. They would set up stone monuments as memorials. They had other things that were provided as memorials. 
And then beyond all that, I think the best example is the fact that God himself remembers. God himself chooses to remember certain things, and he chooses to never again remember certain things. And the pattern of what God remembers and what God chooses not to remember is given for us in our prayer life. What do we remember and what do we choose not to remember in our applications uh, related to this? So uh, much of this is what we've been dealing with for the last couple of sessions and, and spent a lot of time dealing with zakir. And of course, all the zakir is the Hebrew word for remember. And so when you have uh, Zechariah, uh, the prophet, that means Yahweh remembers. And uh, a lot of that, of course, from the Old Testament. There's a book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Takes us into the New Testament where we have one final Zechariah, and that's in the Greek name of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and the story there. In uh, Luke chapter 1, we read through the song, the prophecy that he uttered there with respect to the birth of John the Baptist. And uh, the great passage there in Luke 1, verses 67 and 72. All right, I want to move on this morning to a couple of other items. Uh, point four, as we talk about prayer, and uh, as we see it here, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And we have terms here that are repeated. We have a verb and a noun that are repeated. In fact, we are making prayers as we pray in different combinations uh, of the verb and the noun. In fact, it's paraphrastic as we have the, the participle here for making and then the noun prayer. We are making prayers as we pray. And uh, some of that's a little bit idiomatic, but there's a concept I want us to hold on to, the concept with respect to making prayers and what we do as we are, in fact, engaged in this activity before the Lord. So uh, take a peek over at Philippians 4, if you will, just briefly. Philippians 4 and verse 6, and you'll see the, the uh, overwhelming impact uh, that just jumps out at you when you look at that. In a context, uh, going back to verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And prayer is a, is a great venue for rejoicing, just like it's a great venue for thankfulness. Uh, and just like with our verb uh, eucharisteo to give thanks, most of the uses of that verb are in a prayer context. Same thing with, with rejoice. The, most of the context for rejoice are in a prayer application. And so we see it here. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. How do we do that? How do we broadcast our gentleness? How do we broadcast our gentle spirit? Again, I think it's in a prayer context. As we are praying personally and corporately and publicly, we are praying in this uh, testimony. Uh, verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we have four terms right there in one verse, because we have prayer, that's one. Supplication is two. Thanksgiving is three. And request is four. Let your request be made known to God. And the activity that we do as we remind the Lord, remember, He's not forgetful. He's not, uh, we're not overcoming a momentary glitch in His omniscience <laughs> when we go to Him in prayer. All right. But it does say, let it be known. Let it be made known. So how do I cause the one who knows everything to know my request? Because it's causative. Cause him to know. And these are, these are principles that I, that I just love. To me, they're beautiful. They are part of the, um, the, 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 the if you want to think of it as the paradoxes of, of Christianity. How do we know the love of Christ that surpasseth understanding? Well, if it surpasses understanding, how do we understand it? Or if he dwells in unapproachable light, how do we approach him? See, and all of these conundrums or, or paradoxes of, of Christianity to me are beautiful things. And causing the omniscient God to know our requests is a beautiful thing because he already does know. He knows before we ask, but we cause him to know as we bring it to his remembrance, as our prayer activity takes it, if you will, and, and puts it center stage at the forefront of his thinking. And uh, we'll be dealing with those issues there. Because that's what prayer is. You who remind the Lord, okay? You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest. 
See, that's the, that's the imperative that we have, the pattern that we have as we mount up our position on the wall. We take up our position as watchmen on the wall. And uh, we want to give Him no rest. So, uh, prayers are joyful things generated by our doing. They are things, they are entities, they are things of, of, of substance, spiritual substance before the Father's throne of grace. They are things that are generated by our doing. And uh, as we come back now to verse 4 of chapter 1, we see this as well. Always offering prayer. Offering prayer. Okay? Offering prayer. How do I offer something until I first have something? I have something in hand, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. But I, I generate a prayer in my praying activity, and now I have a thing. And that thing is my prayer. And I'm offering that prayer. Okay? And we have the verb poeo, which is to do or to make. Here in a worship context, it is to offer. Offering this prayer before the Father's throne of grace. And that's what it's about. So um, some of the blessings to, to study with respect to this is uh, our role in the image of God and our role uh, in, uh, in creating things, or if you don't like the term creation, then generating things consequential generation, uh, if you prefer, okay? And I get that. There's only one creator. I understand that. But we are in His image, and we are creative. And in what we do, we often generate things that didn't exist until we thought about them, until we composed them, until we wrote them, until we sung them, until we crafted them or shaped them, if you will, okay? In terms of sculptures or paintings or uh, works of music or anything that that is created okay it's not created out of nothing i get that okay it's not ex nihilo creation none of us does that but we do make these things and craft these things and bring these things about as a part of our creativity and that's what the father loves he absolutely loves that creativity See, so we're warned in our prayers against the mindless repetition. We're warned in our prayers against just things learned by rote, where we can recite them endlessly, mindlessly, without thinking, without true worship. If it's mindless, it's not true worship. And part of what what pleases the Father in our prayers is the creativity that goes into the crafting of a prayer the expression of love, the expression of thanksgiving, the expression of joy, the expression of of appreciation, when we put it in our own words, then it goes up to the Father and it becomes that sweet-smelling savor as the angels carry it it forward. Um, One side trip, I suppose, before we leave this slide. Let's look at Revelation chapter 5. I mentioned this a few times not only uh, recently, but uh, longer ago, as far as the dynamic between the angels and humanity and what we do as we worship, what we do as we pray. And we find in Revelation 5 that our prayers become uh, incense. And we find that that these are the things that uh, that take place. And so we see it here, verse 8, Revelation 5, 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one, notice, holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Notice that, the prayers of the saints. Where do they go? They do exist, and they abide forever. Those prayers abide, and uh, we see the, the reality of it there. Okay, now... And this is a vision, and so we want to be careful in how much of this vision does, I believe, reflects reality. This is what he sees. This is what's happening in heaven. It is a representation of what he sees. And, uh, and there it is. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy, worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals. And so we have the follow-up. There was a song in chapter 4. There's a new song now in chapter 5. But just pinpoint there the incense, the prayers of the saints. And this comes back again a couple more times later in the book. In fact, God will add the incense to those prayers. God himself is going to pour in an abundant measure of incense above and beyond our prayers. Does that not make sense? 
Because is he not the Father who provides exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think? Is, uh, is not the Holy Spirit the one who intercedes on our behalf with the groanings too deep for understanding? And so clearly our prayers, while they are sufficient, are going to be supplemented with God's grace and additional incense is poured in as well. All right, so there's principles that apply there. But think about prayer, and it's, I'll kind of wrap up with this as far as the prayer concept goes. We're going to do much more development in chapter 4. Think about prayer, though, not only as an activity, but then a consequently created or consequently generated thing, something that tangibly remains and abides long after we, uh, we're finished with a verbal activity, long after we're finished with the, the, the mental activity. See, and, uh, and and just chew on that for the coming you know weeks and, and whatnot months until we get to chapter four. Consider the nature of prayer as a thing, as an entity, as a thing of substance that is in the spiritual dimension before the Father's throne of grace. And uh, and I think we'll we'll enjoy that as we follow up. It's there are other earthly analogies, other things we can think about in terms of uh, headaches right? I get migraines occasionally. And, and, and what is a headache? Is that a thing? Okay, you bet it's a thing. All right, I'll tell you right now it's a thing. And I can count them, okay? I've lost count over the years. But, um, but you say, well, it's a thing, but it, it, it's, it, it comes about when an activity is happening. When my head is aching, right? My head is aching, so there's an activity there. And as that activity happens, we say that we have, or I have, a headache. Why do I have a headache? Because my head is aching. See? That makes sense? All right. So it's like prayer. When do I have a prayer? I have a prayer when I am praying. See? So it's both a verb and a thing. I am praying. And as I am praying, I have a prayer. And what might I do with that prayer when I'm done praying? See, when my head is done aching, do I still have the headache? Okay, I just lost the room. I'm sorry. (laughs) Never mind. The point is, though, when my head stops aching, I no longer have a headache. But when I stop praying, I still have a prayer. Okay? I still have a prayer because it has, I, it has been offered up before the Father's throne of grace. I still have a prayer. And in fact, I can have a remembrance of that prayer. All right. More on that. Like I say, we'll get into that when we get into chapter 4. So, always offering prayer with joy. Mixing in the joy, it's like mixing in the drink offering to the, uh, to the meat offering or the grain offering or whatever else you're sacrificing. Uh, there would be an element of a, of a cup that would be poured out or a cup that would be mixed in with the uh, sacrifice. Here we see joy is being mixed in with the thanksgiving sacrifice. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of... In view of, now we start to see the motivation. We start to see the context. What is it that produces the joy? The joy is produced because of the frame of reference whereby Paul has not lost sight. He has a view. He's, he's, he's thinking about consideration of your participation. Really, it's the noun for fellowship, and that's what I want to spend some time in here today. So let's move forward. Can we do that? Yes, we can. All right. In fact, of course I can do that because I am the boss. The machine works for me. All right. Typically. (laughs) Occasionally. Now, the joy component of Paul's prayers, or ingredient, if you want to think of it as an ingredient, the ingredient that's mixed in with the uh, thanksgiving. The joy component of Paul's prayers were in view of. And that idiom, in view of, is interesting because it's used throughout the scriptures of both men and God. God keeps a lot of things in view. All right? But here Paul is keeping it in view. In view of, or based upon, epi plus the dative, epite, based upon the Philippians' fellowship participation in 
the gospel, all right? And specifically, it says here, from day one, from the first day until now. It never stopped. It never stopped. Other things stopped. They, uh, the, the money stopped because they, they lacked opportunity, so the money stopped. But the fellowship participation never stopped. From day one until now, it never stopped. And so this becomes a, uh, a blessing for us to consider as well. The joy component of Paul's prayers were in view of or based upon, and say, if you really want a fun afternoon, uh, go search every epite in the New Testament. And, and not just epite, you gotta get, that's, that's feminine. You've got to get your uh, masculine uh, dative and your neuter dative as well. Epi plus the dative, all right? Epi plus the dative, and, and track down your, your uh, 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 prepositions, okay? But specifically, uh, when, you, when you track them down, observe the verbs of uh, speaking, the verbs of praying, the verbs of, uh, of, of thankfulness, anything that would then be uh, comparable to what we're seeing here, okay? Whereby something is being done or said or spoken, and it's because of something else. It's causative or in view of. I, I do like the expression in view of, okay? In view of or based upon. Literally, epi is on, on or upon. So you could say upon, um, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all upon your participation. And the idea of upon there is based upon or because of, in light of, in view of. That's the, to me, that's the idiom that makes the most sense. That's, the, that's what resonates the best with our modern idiom. And it's what God does as well, by the way. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10, God never lost sight of uh, the fullness of time, Right? with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. God himself does what he does while not losing sight of what the overall objective is. And that's, uh, to me, that's powerful. That's, that sets the example for how you and I are supposed to operate. That we may have a, you know, day-to-day operations, but we have also long-term view. And so we see this here as well. All right, the Philippians' fellowship participation in the gospel. The noun there is koinonia. Koinonia, K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, Koinonia. It's in fact where the, the term Koine Greek comes from. It's the common Greek. It's the shared Greek. And the idea of koinos is something that's common, something that's shared. And uh, the, the history on this, we, I think we're familiar with, but in case you don't know, this, is, uh, this was designed because... Uh, uh, all the, the different Greek city-states and Greek tribes and different uh, Doric and, and uh, Attic and, and so forth, they had similar languages, very close, cognate forms a lot of times, but not precisely exact. And uh, for Alexander's conquest, he wanted all of his troops uh, speaking the same language. He wanted all of his troops to be able to, to communicate with one another in battle and on the campaign. And so Koine then was created as a blend of the various uh, uh, Greek dialects. And like I say, Doric and, and Ionic and Attic were some of the, the major dialects, and they were blended together in a common form. And so Koine is the common Greek. And not only was it the language that allowed Alexander to make his conquest, but it was also the language that allowed the gospel to make its conquest. Because in the New Testament it was written in Koine Greek, and it went all over the Roman world and, and, and uh, resonated with the people that it reached. And so that's the idea of, of uh, something in common, something that's shared. And when we have fellowship one with another, it's because we have something in common. We have something that's shared. In fact, we're told in 1 John, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. If we don't have fellowship with the Father and Son, you and I don't have a chance of having any kind of fellowship together. It's based upon our fellowship with the Father and the Son. We want to be clear on these things. Fellowship in the gospel from day one. Now, I think there's um, a parallel to this. How do they become partners in the gospel? How do they become sharers in the gospel? Well, they they received the gospel, clearly. They got saved. There was a jailer there that got saved, and others, his household, that got saved. Others that got saved in, in, uh, in Philippi. We'll talk about some of the background on this. There was no synagogue there in Philippi, but he found a place of prayer um, down by the riverside. Okay? And they wrote a song about it, <laughs> down by the riverside. And they, uh, but they found some folks that got saved, and they had a fellowship, not only in the moment of their salvation and that conversion experience, but 
as, as the church was established and as the missionaries moved on, they continued to have a fellowship participation in the gospel. They became supporters of Paul and his traveling team as they went to Thessalonica and beyond. Okay? And some of those details we'll see as well when we look at uh, Acts 17 and when we look at um, Philippians 2 and Philippians 4. Some of that's coming up. But I would uh, also bring to your attention 2 Corinthians 1.11. 2 Corinthians 1.11, which we brought up the other day as well, to show you the fellowship, to show you the partaking and the helping that occurs here. 2 Corinthians 1.11. And how do we participate in these things? More often than not, we do so in prayer. This is where our fellowship participation comes from more often than not. It can also come about through our finances. It can come about through literally traveling and, and doing these things together. But 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and uh, all of Paul's thankfulness for his deliverances, plural. This is the chapter, remember, that has all the comfort and all the, all the provision there. Then in verse 8, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. That verse there is your sketch for the book of Philippians, Okay. He's in Asia, he's in Ephesus, he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die, doesn't know which to root for, and he's writing a letter to the, Ephesians, to the Philippians about those experiences. And this now gets, in hindsight, reflected upon in 2 Corinthians 1.8. In verse 9 it says, Indeed we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. You know, while you're waiting for the judge to hand down the sentence and you got your own mind made up and it's within yourself, you say this is it. We're guilty. We're going, we're, going to, we're going to be executed. Who delivered us, notice, past tense, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us or is delivering us, present tense, he upon whom we have set our hope and he will yet, future tense, deliver us. So three deliverances, three sozo applications in verse 10. Who saved us, who will save us and will yet save us. And then the key here in verse 11. I love this you also joining in helping us through your prayers. This is where we become fellowship participants. We become, uh, we get to share in these things so that thanks may be given by many, uh, many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through, notice the vehicle, through the prayers of the many. And this is why we want to really stress the, the efficacy the impact that happens through corporate prayer, that happens through the prayers of the many, where God himself testifies that things are provided on that basis. Things are provided through the prayers of the many. And so we have the principle there. All right. Koinonia. What are we talking about with koinonia? Fellowship. There are 19 uses of it in the New Testament. I want to see a lot of them here this morning. I want to talk about fellowship so we understand what it is. Um, there are 19 instances contained within 17 verses. Uh, a couple times the, the term is used twice in the same verse. That's why there's a difference between 19 and 17. There's actually more than that. There's actually a total of 35 verses. If you want to add some additional forms, you want to add a verb, you want to add a, 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 an adjective uh, as well as uh, and some compounds. There's soon koinonia as well. There's a compound of koinonia that uh, I think is worth looking at as well. So subpoint A, uh, we can, we can uh, survey 17 koinonia verses or we could survey 35 um, Quinone hyphen verses where we're we're blending in all of the different terms. That's what I want to do with you here this morning. And it won't take long. We'll we'll kind of work our way through and we'll see what they're about. But we're going to learn very quickly that fellowship is not idle chit chat. <laughs> fellowship is not sitting in a room, you know, eating something and and talking about the weather, okay? Or talking sports or talking uh, you know, about the the crummy start the Seattle Mariners are getting. I mean, are you kidding me? You know, the, the, within one week of the season starting, they're already out of the playoff contention. It's, it's amazing how, how, how far can you be. That's not fellowship, okay? That's just talking sports. You could talk sports with an unbeliever, right? 
or politics or current events or, man, I've been watching the clips of that bomb they dropped in Afghanistan and that's fun watching big explosions, okay? And uh, we can talk about that. It's not fellowship. If an unbeliever can do it, it's not fellowship, okay? Or if a carnal believer can do it, it's not fellowship. Fellowship is the sharing in the Lord of His grace, and we're going to see that, the, the links between grace and fellowship uh, significantly in, in most of these applications. All right, and so you'll see what we're talking about here. If I bring this up, yeah, we'll do the big one. Yeah, 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 I know. All right, so here it is, and I think I have a larger one ready. Here we go, let's do this one. Is that big enough for you? Nope, too big. All right. And it's colorful. You like colors? I like colors. Um, But this is a kind of a a combined uh, verse list to include koinonia, also the verb koinoneo, to have fellowship or to share, Uh, the verb, uh, the, the noun koinonos, okay, or the adjective koinonos, and then the compound soon koinonos, to share together. That's, boy, that really gets intense, doesn't it? Because if you're sharing, you're, that already has a togetherness component just built in. You know, sharing kind of implies there's somebody else you're sharing with. <laughs> but then you combine it with a soon prefix and you just uh, intensify it all the more. Starting with Matthew 23 or Luke 5, either one, um, you'll notice that uh, we have uh, the use of the term here that references partners. Okay, And if you think about it with a partner, a business partner or some other kind of partner, the idea of a partner is you have something that you are sharing, something in common, a business interest that you hold in common. Okay, And so in Matthew 23, the, uh, the pride of the Pharisees, the pride of the scribes saying, well, you know, if, if, if uh, we would have been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the, uh, the shedding of blood. You know, those, those wicked... Uh, fathers, they, they, they murdered the prophets. And we're a lot better than that. Okay? And, they, and they actually would build these monuments to the, to the prophets and these tombs and whatever. And they're the very heirs of the, of the murderers of those prophets. Right? And, and they're so prideful saying, oh, we wouldn't have done that. Yeah, you would have. Absolutely you would have. You would have done worse. And we can prove that because you're about to do worse. Those guys murdered the prophets. You guys are on the verge of crucifying the Christ. The whole point there in that, in that rebuke is to nail them for their pride and their hypocrisy. Anyway, they use the term there for partners. And, and that's the idea of what we have here. The Philippians were Paul's gospel partners. And that, that principle of partnership, we want to foster that. We're partners with every missionary we support. We're partners with them in prayer and financing. And sometimes we, we travel there and we, we literally put hands on on the ground, you know, boots on the ground and hands on. Sometimes we do that too. But we start with prayer, okay? In Luke chapter 5, the expression uh, partners references uh, the, the fishing uh, business that uh, Peter, James, and John had. And specifically, if you read it closely enough, um, James and John were the sons of Zebedee, and it says, who were partners with Simon. And it's interesting to me uh, who the partnership was with. Was it between, I think it's ambiguous in, in, in uh, the Luke passage. Anyway, I think Peter was much older. And Peter and Zebedee were of, of, uh, of, a, of a generation. Peter and Zebedee were the partners. John, uh, James and John were the sons of Zebedee. Anyway, it depends on how you read that. Um, but that's the, the same term there, partner, that's used there in, in Luke 5, all right? Uh, the next use is Acts 2, and you say, well, wait a minute. That's it? <laughs> I mean, we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We got four very lengthy gospels. We got four very lengthy books of the New Testament. A significant percentage of our New Testament is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that have virtually nothing to say about fellowship. Almost Zip, zero, nada, right? In fact, they, they have two references to partners, nothing with respect to fellowship. All right? And that's not an accident. Okay? Now, I believe that the, the Bible wants us to have clear delineations between what does it mean to be saved and what does it mean to be in fellowship. Okay? And those are two entirely different realms. And sometimes they, people want to confuse them. And it breaks my heart when they do. 
breaks my heart when they go to 1 John, for example, which is all about fellowship, but then they want to read it as if it's a salvation passage. They want to read it as if, you know, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and somehow they're going to apply that in, in some, some unbeliever getting saved. It has nothing to do with an unbeliever getting saved. 1 John is about those who are saved having fellowship with the Father and with His Son, fellowship with one another. And so I love the fact that the Gospels are virtually uh, bereft of any koinonia uh, application. In fact, there is no koinonia. There's, there's a koinonos and uh, soon koinonos there. All right, but then we get to Acts 2.42. And in Acts 2.42, we have our church bulletin. All right, in Acts 2.42, we have the activities of any local church. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We have the four mandates for corporate activity in the church age. Acts chapter 2, this is the day of Pentecost, this is the beginning of the church. We have the pattern being established here. And this is what they were dedicated to. Teaching comes first. Teaching comes first. You know, if teaching is is a side dish or teaching is an afterthought, that's a, that's a church that's got problems. Doctrine has to come first. Because if everything else has to be in conformity to the doctrine, if it's not compatible with the teaching of the Word of God, why are you doing it? All right. In any event, Acts 2.42. I love it. It's on, the, it's on the, all of our bulletin covers. It's, it's, um, it's uh, not saying that they're the only things we do. Okay, uh, if, if it's not there, can, are we allowed to do it? Okay, there's nothing in Acts 2.42 that says church picnics. (laughs) We have them occasionally. All right, the point is, though, those extra things we do, you know, we we take the kids bowling or whatever, that's all just over and above, beyond, okay, extra stuff. This is our core fourfold mission right here. Teaching, fellowship, communion, and prayer. I believe the breaking of bread there is communion. I believe that's with reference to the Lord's table, and we're going to do that today. All right. In fact, we're going to f- fulfill all four of these here today. And uh, you notice it was a continuous, um, it says day to day, continuing with one mind, with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. What a blessing. This is what we see uh, described here. But verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So that's the fellowship. And it's supposed to be a component of a local church. The component of the body of Christ. See, it doesn't stop with teaching. I've known some churches that stop it with teaching. That is doctrine first and doctrine only. Okay? And that, I think, is a maladjustment. All right? Because I believe it's deficient and it's neglectful and it's, it's sad, actually, to not have those other expressions related to corporate prayer, related to fellowship, or related to the Lord's table. All right. And so we see it there. That's the only use we have in the book of Acts. Then we get into Pauline's, the Pauline corpus. And this is where it really takes off. You know, we call Paul often the apostle of faith. We could also call him the apostle of fellowship. Um, well, except that First John gets a lot of credit. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, give it, we'll give that both to Paul and to John then for, for giving us these details. But Romans twelve thirteen, contributing to the needs of the saints. That's our verb. That's koinoneo. Contributing is sharing. Contributing is fellowshipping. See? And it's not, chari- it's not charity. It's not almsgiving. It's not, um, you know, other things that we could think of. It is a fellowship function of worship whereby we contribute to the needs of the saints. You notice that? Let me flip over there. Romans 12, because there's a larger context as well. Romans 12. And we have the individual applications with our giftedness uh, there in verses 3 through 8. We we have to find our gift and find our realm of service and plug in to the body. And so uh, we have the the giftedness and the individual stressed in verses 3 through 8. Then we get to the corporate functions in verses 9 and following, a recipe for a a, uh, successful local church ministry. Starting in verse 9, "...let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good." Be devoted to one another in brotherly love requires the corporate assembly. Joe Hermit Christian living in a cave can't fulfill that verse. 
Okay, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Uh, give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging, again, takes corporate application in order to obey these imperatives. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints. That's koinoneo. That's the verb for sharing. It is the fellowship sharing in contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. It goes on, blessing those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Keep in mind, we haven't left the assembly here yet. (laughs) If you think that those who persecute you as those mean, ugly, unbeliever, bad people out there outside the church, think again. We haven't left the context of the local church. Notice uh, uh, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. That's still in the local church context. Be of the same mind toward one another. It's still in the local church context. This whole, this whole scope. And so uh, don't, don't rip out verse 14 out of its appropriate context and only apply it outside the flock. No, those who persecute you might be inside the flock. And then we've got a chance to grow through that too. <laughs> okay, we've got to deal with these things. All right, but contributing to the needs of the saints. Again, it's not just writing a check and throwing money at somebody because you feel sorry for them. Are you kidding me? Seriously? This is fellowship. This is the privilege that we have in Christ. The joy that we have to share because we're in Christ and we realize that all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And when I see what the the Father shared His Son... What am I not willing to share? Okay, Why do I draw a line and say, oh, no, 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 that's, you can't have that. Hands off, that's mine. Wait a minute. That's, we're all about the fellowship, and this is why we see it here. All right. Um, chapter 15 has a couple of uses there. Romans 15, 26 and 27. Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution Interesting idiom, the, the, the verb is koinoneo, okay? Um, or actually it's the noun koinonia, to poeo, to make, to make a sharing, to make a fellowship. For the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, yes, they were pleased to do so. It gave them pleasure to do so. Why? Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. You know, is it fun to receive grace? It's more fun to give grace. It is the blessing, it is the joy to be the giver. They were pleased to do so. They were because, indeed, they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared, and this is our verb here, in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. And so we see the the links and the dynamics and the contrast between spiritual and material. And the recognition that the the, the material is is simply a reflection. And it's really a finite one at that. Okay? It's limited in its scope. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's just a, a representation. The real sharing is in the spiritual realm. The real sharing comes in the prayers. The real fellowship happens before the Father's throne of grace. The, uh, the tangible effects of that is, is, is almost a side effect, right? When it comes right down to it. All right, so there's, uh, there's Romans. 1 Corinthians through whom you were called into fellowship. 1 Corinthians 1.9. And here we start to see what I was mentioning earlier, that distinction. We want to draw a sharp line in the sand between salvation and fellowship. You can't have fellowship until you're saved, but it's not the same thing. Just because you're saved does not mean you're automatically in fellowship, either with the Lord or with one another. See, carnality can destroy that fellowship quicker than anything. And we can lose that, that fellowship like that. Don't lose our salvation, of course, but we lose our fellowship. So 1 Corinthians 1, 9, you'll notice though we are saints by calling and we are uh, those who are sanctified. We are born again and saved. The context is written to believers. But notice, verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, it's not about just getting saved and waiting to go to heaven when you die. There's a life to live in the meantime. There is fellowship in the meantime. 
And, and what do you think your eternal fellowship is going to be like once you get there if you've been pretty lousy at your fellowship even now? Okay? We should be nurturing that fellowship even now. It ought to be uh, when we step through that veil, it's like, man, we've, we've already, we know our way around. We feel comfortable here. We've been here. See? And um, anyway, there's other things to consider there. So we were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And you can use this. You can use this when you talk to people that aren't disciples, people that are, they claim to be saved, but they're not, you know, churchgoers or whatever. I encounter a lot of those people, you know. Well, you know, where do you, who do you fellowship with? Where do you fellowship? Who are you subject to? What shepherd is accountable for your soul? And they look at you like, you know, a cow looks at an oncoming train, right? <laughs> they just, what's that, you know? Um, well, where do you fellowship? Where do you meet together for the mutual encouragement of one another, for the building up of one another? Who do you submit to in the shepherding authority of your soul? You don't have a clue. But that's what we're called to do. We're called into fellowship with His Son. So we can use these things as, uh, you know, just, just getting saved. That's not the end of God's plan. Chapter 10, today's Communion Sunday, and so we should remind ourselves of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Told to flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. And, and that flee from idolatry. That is so linked with our fellowship. It's, it's every time you come to it. Why is it uh, the conclusion of 1 John to flee from idolatry? Keep yourself from idols. Because we've got the book of fellowship in 1 John. Well, here, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? When we take that cup together, we are sharing. We are testifying in our remembrance that the, the same blood of Christ that purchased my redemption is the same blood of Christ that purchased your redemption. And if, whether you got saved 50 years ago or 60 years ago or this morning or somewhere in between, we share in that. And communion becomes our, our blessing in that remembrance, in that sharing. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? And so we have a fellowship in the, in the bread, a fellowship in the cup. And that's what we have in common as we take this fellowship. And we don't want to be guilty of that. We don't want to be guilty of the body and blood of Christ by violating this or partaking in an unworthy manner. See, don't take uh, communion if you're carnal. Not at all. Anyway, it's described there. It goes on. Um, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? They were structured this way in the Old Testament, the Levitical priests. The priests and the Levites, he would bring in the, the sacrifice, they would offer the sacrifice, and then they would eat. That's how you fed your Levite, okay? You bring your sacrifice to him, and then you sit down together, and he teaches you doctrine, and you fellowship in the things of the Lord, and, uh, and you, you're feeding him, and you're eating together, and, and he's teaching you. What a, what a win-win. Fellowshipping over food, say, I can relate to that. In fact, I like that. The problem is, though, if we introduce idolatry to this, to this practice. And the Corinthians were terrible with their idolatry. And then they end up bringing demons to the communion table. So, uh, verse 20, uh, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers, fellowshippers, participants in demons. Cannot partake of both. All right, so there's the warning that comes there. All right. Second Corinthians, sharers of our sufferings. Sharers of sufferings. Second Corinthians 1 7. And um, you know, passages like this really frame the the, the inadequate realities of, of chit chat, you know sports and weather and whatever else. How about the fellowship of his sufferings? How about the fellowship of one another's sufferings? And uh, verse 7, we were just here, weren't we? Yeah, we were. Um, but verse 7 says, our hope for you is firmly grounded knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also of our comfort. 
Okay? The sharers is implied there the second time. But that's where the fellowship is. When your brother is suffering, you're supposed to share in that. Have fellowship in that. Pray through that. Relate to that. Identify with that. Accept that as your own. Say, on a sacrificial intercessory prayer basis. You know, if I could, I would. I would take it, you know, when, when Doug was struggling with the shingles, you know, would, would you take the shingles off of him and accept it in your own eyes? Okay? Or something else that someone else is going through. I don't know if you saw the email this morning, but Simon's with the Lord now, that 12-year-old little boy. And we've been praying for him for, for weeks, for months, really. And, you know, you just, you just you become a sharer in that on behalf of his parents, on behalf of his grandparents. And you, just, you want to share in that, in those, in those prayers. So that also then you can become sharers of the comfort when the grace of God shines forth and that, that power is exhibited. We, be, we become sharers in that also. Second Corinthians chapter six and verse fourteen. We familiar with this text? Do not be bound together with unbelievers. And uh, we have these expressions here, and and they're all used in parallel. And I think because they're all used in parallel, it gives us a very good sense of definition for what we're talking about with fellowship, because we can relate it to all these other expressions. What partnership? have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what in harmony has Christ with Belial? We understand that harmony is a huge component to our fellowship. Just like partnership and fellowship, all these terms being used in this connected way. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is all what we're going to be teaching and promoting with respect to fellowship in these applications. Agreement. We're going to learn about agreement, one with another. How do we have that agreement? Well, just do what your pastor tells you and you'll have agreement. (laughs) No. Okay, that's not what it's about. We all together, including the pastor, are to be of one mind, and that's the mind of Christ. We're to be one-minded, and that's to be intent on one purpose. We're all being conformed to that image of Christ. That's what's going to produce the fellowship. That's going to produce the agreement. And we may have earthly disagreements left and right. We may have a thousand earthly disagreements, and none of those are going to matter. Because we're going to have one agreement. We want Christ to be exalted and glorified. And so you choose to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I choose to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. But we're in agreement that what we do, we do as unto the Lord. And so you do what you do with thanksgiving, I do what I do with thanksgiving. And we may have had specific disagreement in the particulars, but we have agreement in the principle. So that becomes, uh, that becomes a powerful thing as well. In a grace-giving context, the financial aspect of giving, of course, is a fellowship application. 2 Corinthians 8. We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. An unbeliever doesn't understand that. <laughs> Earthly finances don't understand how you can be poor yet make others rich. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging, I love that, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation. That's koinoneo. The favor of fellowship in the support of the saints. Begging. This was their attitude towards finances. This was their attitude towards giving. And the Philippians were part of that. I mean, they were really the, the, the linchpin of, of all those Macedonian churches. So when we study this in Philippians, this passage takes center stage begging us with much urging for the favor, participation, and the support of the saints. That right there brings us back to where we are this morning in, in Philippians 1.5, that they were partakers, they were fellowship partakers in the things of the gospel from day one, from day one until now, prayerfully and financially. And not only this, as we had expected, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 8, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. 
And so we see that it's, uh, it's really, it's not even on behalf of the recipients. It's really serving the Lord in uh, serving one another. All right, uh, there's another partner term in uh, verse 23. It's for Titus. He is my fellowship partner and fellow worker. Um, get over to chapter 9, we got verse 13. The liberality of your contribution, the liberality of your fellowship is the term there. The benediction to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Todd Kennedy closes every one of his services with this benediction. See, But he says, the, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship, the koinonia of the Holy Spirit be with you all. all right, we studied in Galatians, you might remember, the right hand of fellowship. Uh, we studied in Galatians 6.6, 6, the one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches. That was not that long ago where we were in Galatians 6. Remember that? And that was not specifically related to paid clergy in a local church. It's actually the fellowship that we all have one towards another when we pass along what we've heard, when we teach what we, what we know and fellowship in the things of the word of God. All right, look at all these uses in Philippians. Philippians 1, Philippians 2, Philippians 3, Philippians 4. That pretty much covers every chapter, doesn't it? <laughs> okay. We've got the applications that we're going to be seeing again and again and again here in this book. Chapter 2 and verse 1. If there is any um, consolation, let me get there. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and all of these are assumed to be true, Yes, since all of these things are true, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. And so we'll discuss that. But the uh, the fellowship of the Spirit is right there. Chapter 3 and verse 10. You know, and and you you don't consider yourself as having laid hold of it yet. And uh, you want to reach forward. You want to be mindful. And, uh, and so he talks about this. He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it's in this context then that he says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, so that I may gain Christ. Now notice that's a purpose clause looking forward to a future gain that he doesn't view himself as having yet. He's already saved. So positionally, he already has Christ. Positionally, he's in Christ. But there is a gain that he's still looking forward to. He does not consider himself as having laid hold of it yet. And I may be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And notice, this is not his past salvation. He's still looking forward. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead in verse 11. But verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. It's not, this is, this is years later after he's been saved for how long? And he's viewing this as a future goal, an objective, that I may know him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, isn't that a promise? Aren't we all going to be resurrected? Yes, we are all going to be resurrected. But there's a better resurrection, okay? We want to understand what the overcomer rewards are and what what is the prize that we're reaching forward to. Not that I've already obtained it, I've already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. How sad is it when when we think we've arrived, we think we've attained it? God says, you haven't attained it yet. Do you know why I laid hold of you? The fact is we don't. (laughs) Because he's, with his foreknowledge, he knows the purpose of God in our generation. We only have it up till now, up to this point, up to the present all right, I've got to close here. Uh, chapter 4, there's the matter of giving and receiving. 
No church, uh, you yourselves also know Philippians that the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church fellowship shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. And this specifically is fellowship in the financial dimension, the matter of giving and receiving. All right. Brother, I thank you for this day and there's so much more. Uh, we barely scratched it here, but we want to learn more. Open our eyes to this. Uh, teach each one of us, Father, what these fellowship applications are. I thank you that you were already doing this, Father, before the message was even given. You've been illustrating this and demonstrating this in this flock, and I thank you for that. And pray that you continue to manifest your grace, manifest your glory. Open our eyes to what you're doing as you work in and through us for your good pleasure. I thank you for your Son and for your willingness to share Him and Father, the, uh, the blessings of, uh, of this day as uh, Western Christendom testifies to the resurrection of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I thank you in His most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, this is our fellowship time. And in addition to all the mutual encouragement,